this week on Raw File News. Uh, that that's what they're call, we're calling that's what we're calling the news now. What, what do you think? Um, anyway, some progress in Ethiopia as a ceasefire has the potential to end the deadly conflict in Tigray. Plus, Houthi rebels claim responsibility for a massive explosion that rocked an oil field in Saudi Arabia. And mixed signals from Moscow as the bloody Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. Also, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright dies, and Guantanamo Bay gives her a strange send-off. This is Raw File News. Uh, seriously, what do you guys think of the name? Uh, I'm Topher M. Ford, and I've got Brandon Given, Brandon Givens, plural, there <laughs> with me. How's it going, Brandon? Ah, pretty good, pretty good. I finished up, uh, I guess it's spring break, so... I had some time to kind of catch up on reading and and uh, working on Russian a little bit more. So yeah, it's been been a good week. That's excellent. My I I also uh, I took a vacation week that coincidentally happened to be in time with spring break. Um, and then the company that I work for announced it was filing for bankruptcy and closing on the last day of my vacation. So well, they didn't um, get that last week of work out of you. So <laughs> I know that's what I, I think, said. I, I think I you go, won. I step out for a few days and look what happens. It really boosted my self-esteem, but it did help hurt my uh, family's health insurance coverage. So, you know, <laughs> your bottom line, <laughs> help my self-esteem. Six of one, line. half a dozen, the other, like some good and some bad. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to, we're kind of doing things a little different here. First off, uh, we have what looks like good news from Ethiopia. On Thursday, March 24th, the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan rebels announced a truce ending, at least for the time being, the fighting in Tigray that's plagued the country since November 2020. The move is meant to allow humanitarian aid to reach the millions of people staring down the prospect of starvation and dire medical conditions. Some are hopeful that the ceasefire might also present an opportunity to end the conflict for good, uh, but we will see. Uh, so that's good news, um, that, because that has been a rough situation to date. Uh, I'm hopeful. Uh... I mean, we've got an increase in world violence, which I do expect to continue to increase as um, food prices continue to rise. Um, so it kind of seems like it's, I mean, the increase in violence in general sort of seems to be um, like a spiral, you know, like a, a, a cycle that's playing into itself as the conflicts cause prices to rise. Uh, you know, for staple goods, then that sort of inspires or generates more conflict. Yeah. Which I yeah. guess is what you were saying. Yeah. Well, these countries have trouble dealing with these issues and they face gridlock. People get more and more frustrated with the system. And then, yeah, they start revolting and looking for alternatives to democracy to solve their problems. Right. And it becomes hard to remain reasonable the hungrier you get the hungrier you are right. the more 
you watch your children starve, the harder it is to sort of keep a level head and not overreact. <laughs> Although I don't, I guess like who judges what's an overreaction in those cases. Yeah. So well, Jean Valjean went to prison for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family. Oh, you're going to have me singing here in a minute. You don't want that. Okay. Also, uh, on Friday, March 25th, a Houthi attack in Saudi Arabia destroyed an oil storage facility near the coastal city of Jeddah. Houthis say they executed the attack with a number of drones. The attack came just before this weekend's Formula One Grand Prix. Now, uh, Saudi security officials stated that there would be strong security in place for the race and the event would continue as planned. Uh, the, and the Houthi announced that they would suspend drone and missile strikes for the three days of the event. So I guess they really like Formula One racing over there. Well, that's that's also kind of a, a human humanitarian gesture. That right, right. We were we were trying to ruin your race with you know minimal casualties, but since you're all going to have these civilians there having your race, well, we're not going to lob any missiles at you then. So it seems it's, like the Houthis are a little more humanitarian than the Russian military right now. Oh yeah, uh, I'm pretty, <laughs> yeah. That I mean, I don't know. I it's weird to say that I like. A military attack makes me feel good about a group, but, <laughs> it's, it's, but, but you know, it's the Houthis said like, look, we're not trying, we weren't trying to kill people necessarily. We just trying to mess up your, your oil field. You guys are going to have the race. We're not going to, I don't know. I don't know. Well, you don't. You, you you're not feeling good about the attack. Right, you're yeah, feeling that's true. good about the not having an attack. Right. Say that we're not going to attack you during your your little car race. We're going to leave that alone, so we don't get any innocent people killed. Which is um, which is not well, um, being offered to them. You know, so they're being. Right. It's not Even a courtesy being offered to them. We're so. not going well, we're uh. not going to attack your your race cars even though you attack our school buses full of children. So that's a classy move, Hootie Rebels. Okay. You're doing better than FARC winning that winning the propaganda war. Or winning the okay. publicity award. Thursday, March 24th, Azerbaijani forces crossed the line of conflict, raising tensions once again in their ongoing uh, fight with Armenia. The Armenian foreign ministry claims that the Azeri forces attacked Armenian positions, resulting in a handful of casualties. Armenian officials are also claiming that Azerbaijan has cut off a vital flow of natural gas to the city of Artsakh as the area continues to cope with severe cold weather conditions. The Armenian prime minister says that the city now faces a humanitarian crisis. So we've got more people deciding to, uh, you know, make a go of things. Yeah, well, yeah, Armenia is in the uh, CSTO and. 
Azerbaijan is not, even though it's a former Soviet republic. And there are Russian blue helmets there. And the Russians have come out and said, hey, 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 this was, uh, you know, the Russian peacekeepers did did come out and, you know, point a finger. They usually don't like right. to do that amongst their old buddies and said, yes, it was Azerbaijan. And also probably a little bit. Of, this isn't a good time so, for us now, <laughs> which I'm sure is the point <laughs> of the attack. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's it's a, a difficult situation because that area is mostly ethnic Armenian, and they've kind of declared themselves um, an independent republic, but they're not recognized by many, many countries. I think there are like a couple of countries like Abkhazia that they're in the same boat and they all Wait, mutually is that recognize a each other. Um, but Abkhazia? the Armenians... Uh, yeah, I might be mispronouncing it, but in Georgia, uh, in like northwest Georgia, there's a region kind of like also? Um, South Ossetia that... <laughs> I... Well, Look, according my to Russia, geography it is. skills are <laughs> mediocre <laughs> on my best days. And so I still have a thing where sometimes I'll hear about presumably a small country that I didn't, I'd never heard of. And it, it continues to well, blow my mind. If it makes mind, you feel better, they're not recognized like, by country, uh, as countries by anyone. Um, so, you know, that does that, make me feel better. Yeah, so that does. It's more, it's more of a... Um, you know, a, a, a finer, detailed cultural idea of of the country. Uh, let me see if I can. Uh, yeah, Abkhazia. I still might be mispronouncing it, but that's how it's spelled. <laughs> and yeah, okay. it's um. See, when you when you have these uh, kind of like Soviet republics, a lot of times the minority groups prefer the the Russians. Um, like in oh, what was it Moldova? There's like a, a Turkish or a Tatar group that's Christian, and they were kind of sympathetic to the Soviets, and because they were treated a little bit better, because the Soviets are really like big against nationalism, and if you're a minority or like a sub minority within a country like Georgia, it's kind of nicer to have a another group say, "Hey, don't pick at them." Because we might pick at you or, you know, like stop being so nationalistic right. and it can get, I mean, the, the reasoning can get complicated, but, you know, um, but uh, Ossetia is another region like that. There's a North Ossetia in Russia proper and South Ossetia was a, a region in, in Georgia, but they're like, no, 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 we, we really want to be part of Russia or, um, but I, they kind of like call themselves their own country, uh, similar to, right. to North Cyprus. You know, like they, they all have Turkish passports, but there's also like a North Cyprus passport. But the world says North Cyprus doesn't exist, that it's all just Cyprus. Right. And what you said about, you know, some of the ethnic minorities kind of favoring Russia because Russia would stand up for them reminds me of uh, an experience I had when I was in elementary school. And I remember I was maybe five or six or seven sitting in the hallway right outside the principal's office. And 
feeling pretty down. And uh, we, if you remember Brandon, because we went to the same school uh, in the elementary school, right across from the principal's office were the double doors to the cafeteria. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there were, uh, it was lunchtime for some of the older kids. I think they were probably junior high kids or something, but they were older to me. And one of the older kids looked at me and did or said something to pick at, pick on me. I don't remember what it was. And another guy who was standing behind him, who I knew because he was the son of my babysitter, uh, he, I, he like pushed the guy and made him stop picking on me. And that made me feel really good. Later on, oddly enough, the guy who stood up for me murdered his best friend shot him in the back and that's terrible it's awful but my memory of him is primarily of him sticking up for me so i guess i feel some you know yeah there's there's a lot there are many layers of metaphor going on here right. <laughs> so i feel yeah. oddly connected to these small uh quasi nations um Anyway, oh, so what else were you going to say about this uh, conflict with Armenia? Uh, yeah, well, um, the Armenian military occupied um, a swath of Azerbaijan, and then there was a war there, or a, probably a military operation, and the lines were moved. The Azerbaijani kind of pushed the Armenian forces back, um, and this is a, they're poking at those lines again, is what's going on. And there's still, I think it's uh, this Armenian region in Azerbaijan is um, Nagorno-Karabakh. And so, it, you know, it's, well, it's not exactly a frozen conflict anymore, but it's largely ethnically Armenian, but by law, it's part of Azerbaijan, but there are Armenian soldiers there. And from even like a, I guess, the CSTO point of view, if Azerbaijan just attacks it to try to, you know, to take it completely. I don't know what Which legal is, authority, you know, because it, it is a, it's a, it is a, an occupied area of Azerbaijan, like Armenian right, troops so there. It's sort of so, like, so it's, it's sort of like Azerbaijan by crossing that uh, line of conflict. They're not technically attacking armenia yeah Is correct that? yeah yeah uh, i mean that but there are armenian soldiers there it would be like if um two years ago um ukrainian troops went into crimea actually it wouldn't even be that much because crimea has annexed was annexed by russia it's not recognized by you know the world community but you know, it, the world community would say, well, Crimea is Ukraine, so they have the right to, like, they have been invaded and have the right to do a policing action to get rid of the, the Russian occupation. But that's not the best metaphor because, like, this region um, was not uh, annexed by Armenia. They're just kind of like saying, yeah, yeah, we recognize that they're independent and we want to keep them that way. And, you yeah, know, so. And Azerbaijan is just bide, getting more, you know, they're just biding their time. And I mean, I tend to be sympathetic to secessionist movements as a general rule, but 
I also understand why it's difficult because if you start letting any groups, you know, it succeed, it ends up creating this complicated precedent of redrawing lines and then people want to break away because they're sitting on a, you know, oh, I'm an ethnic group that moved right here where this oil well is. And now we want, right. we want to be our own country and have this oil well. And, right. You know, it, and yeah, and there is this thing of secessionist movements based on, you know, like some culture, shared culture or shared ethnicity or shared language, something like that. But then, yeah, like you, as you were saying, Sometimes it can be motivated by resources. It can, we've seen that, I mean, to a much less degree, because there isn't an actual conflict. There's just, you know, people running their mouths. But we see that in California, where, you know, most of the state is liberal, but then Northern California, sections of Northern California are pretty conservative and are unhappy with you know, the liberal government in California and the high taxes and whatnot. And a lot of, you know, policy that really is meant to benefit cities and ur urban areas while kind of leaving rural areas out in the cold. Um, at least that's what they, yeah. you know, claim. And they keep talking about wanting to secede from California and take all of their agriculture with them because a lot of food the whole country is grown in northern california so i think a lot of the this is the that far north that really wants to break away it's mostly weed but um they have a lot of, <laughs> they have a lot of water that comes from that region um, right right but and yeah like i said i don't think it's actually you know something that's gonna happen anytime soon there's also in um oregon like those eastern counties are very different from from Western Oregon. And, and that's a bit of a cultural thing and an ethnic thing. <laughs> well, there, there, that there's a movement for them to go join Idaho and possibly even that northern part of Northern California could join too. And I'll be honest, I don't know that that's a bad idea because some of these states was like 50,000 people in them and 80,000 people getting two senators is a little silly. And if their needs are not being met because Seattle is at, you know, oh, you know, Seattle just bullies them. Or actually, that's Washington State. You know, Portland, <laughs> Portland bullies them. Or Eugene. Um, yeah, let them join Idaho. Make Idaho a bigger state. You know, Idaho and Montana, Wyoming, the, those northern Nevada, just one big state. <laughs> I would. Of course, then that, you know, I, they would. I, oh, well, we only have two senators now. I think that I would maybe push back on that a little bit based simply on the fact that I'm pretty sure most of the people who are pushing for that sort of thing are white supremacists <laughs> and that there's, you know, in Oregon and uh, in that region of the country, they're de like cities like Portland are dealing with a huge problem with neo-nazis and white supremacists who are like if you like from what i understand i haven't been there but from everything i hear you get out of the city the urban areas in oregon you're entering like hardcore white supremacist areas 
And I, you know, I have friends who live in the area who've talked to me, like in Washington and Oregon, and I've seen news reports about, especially during the the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that we saw back in uh, 2020, there was a reactionary movement of white supremacists who were terrorizing these areas. They would load up in pickup trucks, you know, big pickup trucks with so know, like, Antifa flags. coming to t- Antifa's going to come to my town. It wasn't Antifa going to town. Huh? No. <laughs> the, the opposite. Well, and the, yeah. And it was, yeah. And they would like load up as many people as they could in the back of their trucks with their assault rifles and their poorly fitting body armor and drive around town and harass people. And, my understanding is it's that same group of people or same groups of people who are pushing for their own uh, state in that area and let them join Idaho. It might be, well, you know, part of the thing that, that encourages terrorism or how people get radicalized is the feeling that um, they're not being heard or they're being dismissed. And if they had representation in Boise that they felt really represented them or listened to them, then they might be less inclined to radicalization. Right. But if we listen to them, what are they saying? Well, they're saying, I don't know that they'll keep saying that though. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that they would keep saying that. That's my point. Like, I think that they're saying that extreme stuff because they feel threatened or marginalized. And then when they feel threatened and marginalized, it's easier for someone to radicalize them and push those like more extreme ideas onto them. Right. I mean, I understand that. I just don't, I mean, and I think that what you're saying is true as, as far as, you know, these people who are marginalized, people who don't have a voice, uh, you know that they they're going to turn to extremist groups but like so if you but if you solve the problem of not radicalizing as many people the leaders of the extremist groups still exist and will still have their agenda so i i don't hopefully they'll don't go know. back to being i don't know how at. to solve it hopefully they'll go back to being laughed at or seen as well, you know, like Dale Gribble. We used to make fun of Dale Gribble <laughs> and King of the Hill. And now it's like, oh, uh, now, now <laughs> Dale Gribble would have a, he would have a, probably become a, like a state representative. Right, right. So, and I think Dale Gribble, part of Dale Gribble becoming a state representative has to do with a region being kind of sympathetic to the values that he would, might represent, which can be broad. Um, you know, some, sometimes you know, I'm trying. And he's I, not a good. He's not. And he's a flawed example here, I guess, because he's not overtly racist or anything. Uh, he's just, you know, conspiracy theory. He would love QAnon, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he definitely would have been into that. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, right, I guess we well, got lots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's fine. I mean, these are things that um, are concerning here on our home front. Uh, and we don't like 
talking about things that are bad that are near us because it makes me feel nervous. So let's go to yeah. the other side of the world I mean, again. I don't know what an uh, uh, ethnic secessionist group in Azerbaijan has to do with people in Oregon wanting to, to secede. <laughs> what, what does that have to do? How, does, how do those <laughs> things compare? Oh, world is dumb. That's my take. Everyone's dumb. And we all need just to stop and share a big, if somebody could make like one of those Subway uh, hero sandwiches, like the giant Subway sandwich to share with the world, maybe that would solve all our problems. Maybe we just need a big sandwich. Speaking of places where some people could use some sandwiches, that's probably a terrible segue. Uh, let's move on to Ukraine. Oh, <laughs> I feel terrible. It's too now. soon. Too soon. <laughs> I guess so, considering it's still going on. Okay, on Friday, March 25th, Russian General Sergei Rutskoy says that phase one of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is now over. And that's just as their pushes into major cities appear to be stalling out. Russia says its goals in Ukraine are liberating the separatist regions of Donetsk and Luhansk and destroying Ukraine's military. Uh, so maybe they're moving the goalposts closer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to themselves. Um, I mean, not to not to downplay what they've done right. so far, considering yeah, we, they've we, reduced. We totally meant to not capture Odessa. Would we had those like amphibious, <laughs> those amphibious landing boats there? We totally meant to like not land them and turn back. Yeah, right. We, we totally Which, meant to be pushed back into Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, we totally meant to not take Kiev. <laughs> right. That was a distraction. You see, we were trying to distract the military. Right. And although I think you know. Even given that, that, you know, maybe their pushes into the cities haven't been successful the way that they wanted, they're still, even if they were to walk away, they'd still be leaving behind, you know, cities full of rubble. Yeah. Ukraine's, even if I think, I'm, I'm assuming anyway, that even if miraculously Putin pulled all of Russia's military forces, everything out and stopped bombing today. Ukraine is fucked in a lot of ways. They've been, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well, I think, I think the West is going to offer them a lot of money. Um, I mean, they already are. So I think uh, the, the guilty conscience of the West of not doing more or whatever blame they, you know, we might put on ourselves that they're they're going to get help rebuilding and you know it made me think of um when i visited warsaw there's there's a small old town but most of warsaw like walking around it it looks like any like typical midwest city in the u.s it's even about the feels about the same size like oh i'm in indianapolis or something and it doesn't really have all the the there is Soviet architecture around the the block houses, but most of what I saw it felt very kind of new. Like most of it was built in the nineteen, or felt like most of it was built in the nineteen nineties, and it looked like the U.S. I imagine that's what's going to happen to these cities in Ukraine. 
is like Mariupol. Once it's rebuilt, it's going to look like, you know, Houston or something. Or it'll get rebuilt to, you know, in modern architecture, which, you know, will be kind of sad that that will be that historical architecture has been destroyed or lost or will probably have to be bulldozed if it isn't bulldozed or isn't completely destroyed because of, you know, not being stable. Um, Right. But, yeah, Ukraine's going to be direct. Well, like one-fourth of their population is outside of the country. And I think that's the vast majority of that are females. But I imagine they will be working and they're going to be making money in euros or zoltals in Poland. And that's going to be a huge cash infusion later, you know, especially when they return. I imagine a lot will probably marry and that could still, that'll still be cash infusions. So, I mean, Putin has established the the forced integration of Ukraine into the West. He has totally merged the economies at this point by his actions. Oopsie. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's a, it's kind of a win for Western Europe because they're facing a demographic challenge. You know, they're, they're like, there aren't enough young people and there are not enough people paying taxes for social security. Well, the the people that are leaving are mostly kind of young-ish. I mean, I'm sure they have some some elderly, but you know, for the most part, it's younger people, and they're going to start paying taxes and contributing to the system. I mean, right? They got to get a house and all that, but they're not going to play those games. They're like, oh well, but you can't work, and here's 300 euros a month, and you got to just live off this because we don't want you competing with the job market. They're saying, from what I understand, yeah, get in the job market, get in there, <laughs> pay those taxes. We don't, we don't have enough people, <laughs> you know. So, and yeah. if they leave, they're not getting that tax, that social security, what they paid into the social security system. They're they're not getting that back. It's just like you know, worked in China for three years and paid into their social security system and left. Well, that was my donation to the Chinese People's Retirement system. I mean, it's usually done by cities, but anyway, you get the point <laughs> that I'm trying yeah. to make. Um, uh, but we, sh- I think we should be suing something similar with um, Russians because they're trying to leave the young people. We need to do Operation Brain Drain and get all like, you know, the other computer scientists or hackers. You can't get hacked by Russian hackers if they're working for you. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh, all they have a lot of educated people there, just um, anywhere from newborn to 42 or 45 or whatever the military age is there. Uh, as long as you have over a high school diploma, come on over. We'll give you a five-year work visa and it'll brain drain them, uh, be a demographic boost. And... Uh, yeah, I think that'll really harm the Russian war effort. You know, can't send soldiers to fight if they don't have them. And that's all yeah. I got to say about that. Yeah, and that plays into Zelensky's, you know, keeps calling out to the Russian people and the Russian soldiers, hey, you guys shouldn't be down with what's going on and maybe you should think about quitting, don't fight. I mean. Of course, that's just a standard, you know, if you have an army attacking you and you can talk to them 
it would make sense to go, hey, you guys shouldn't fight. You know that your boss is a total dick, right? So, um, and this is when we we need a sound clip. I think it was from an officer and a gentleman. And says, why don't you just quit? It's like, I got no place else to go. <laughs> That's pretty much yeah. Harry Rushes. <laughs> right. And also, if I quit, then I'll probably, you know, be thrown in prison or killed. Except for the Russian soldier who drove the tank over his commander in protest. That was an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've heard different things about what happened with the commander. I read that there was a report he was alive, and I've read that he's dead. I, I don't know how you get run over by a tank and live. Um, I was like, well, maybe did it just run over his feet, or maybe he fell down and it crushed his, his legs or a foot, or like I, I don't. The exact details of the story aren't available, like, but. Yeah, they're 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 pretty upset. Uh, the Russian soldiers. I'm hoping for a mass defection. Yeah, we'll see. Um, and, and it does seem, you know, like we've said before, that Russia is having some trouble. Things don't seem to be going according to plan. Uh, which could be good news, except it also has led to uh, another announcement and more uh, chest thumping. Uh, Russia's deputy secretary, Russia's deputy security council chairman Dmitry Medvedev, uh, reasserted this last week that Russia still retained the right to use nuclear weapons should the government feels Russia's own security was at risk and he laid out the different conditions that Russia has set for itself to justify using nuclear weapons. And the bar was kind of vague and maybe a little low. Well, the lowest bar was an existential threat. Like the nation could cease to exist. So like, you know, in a realistic sense, Moscow is under siege. Um, but at the same time, an existential threat can be vaguely described. Like, us losing the Crimea means that Russia would no longer exist. Therefore, it is an ex- as we understand it exists. Therefore, it is an existential threat. <laughs> and so, uh, and, but yeah, it was, it was... I think it was meant to unnerve people, but I don't think that's going to have the result that they want. Right. Um, Vladimir Zelensky responded by saying, quote, Russia is deliberately bragging that they can destroy with nuclear weapons, not only a certain country, but the entire planet, which is true that Russia has the largest nuclear stockpile of any country in the world right now. They've got about 6,000 nuclear warheads, whereas even the United States, we've got about 4,800 or so, uh, which is both of those numbers are entirely too high. Uh, way <laughs> yeah, there's, more. there's no need. There's no need for that. How many would you really need? Like a couple dozen? Well, I don't know how I many mean, of those are tactical nukes. And how many of those are like 
the super, super big ones like tactical nukes, which I think should be a red line. Uh, I mean, they like would blow up a grid square, like a square kilometer. I mean, that's my understanding of them. Like it's tactical because you could would theoretically use it on the battlefield. Um, but so I don't know how many of those missiles are, are tactical nukes. And uh, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, I'm not an expert, but I, I don't think if all, you know, like a thousand tactical nukes went off at once, I don't think that would destroy the earth, but it would be incredibly horrible for right. wherever they, they landed and, and all but that. But I think that they have enough of the big ones that, you know, that are meant to take out. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, I'm how many of those sure. do you need? Well, then the whole issue with nuclear winter and yeah, all that. Right. And, We've been seeing a lot more science articles coming out talking about, you know, what the effects would be. And even if, from what I understand, and I'm not a scientist, but from what I understand, if we had a nuclear conflict in that area of the world and, you know, they set off a handful of nukes, that's still going to affect people on the other side of the planet. You know, it'll have drastic effects on the weather. Oh, yeah. Uh, the spread of fallout. Uh, the, uh, what you know, the, the spread of nuclear material, dust and debris. That would probably cover most of Europe. So well, a lot of it's not good. Yeah, our major climate events, like um, I can't remember that exact year. I want to say six thirty-two, but um, it's like about the time Attila um, started raiding the um, the Roman Empire. Uh, a lot of those uh, like the Earth got colder for a year or two, like snowing in June, that sort of thing, and it was volcanoes going off and yeah. and early 1800s there was a similar thing that was like uh, i think um i think it was in iceland a volcano that was major major explosion and almost you know killed everyone on the island and the it changed the the weather like it was just cold super cold for a right. while and you know, you get starvation and, and famine from that. And that's kind of what we would be dealing with. And now, like, we, we've made this ability where we can have, like, one farmer can feed so many people, you know, especially with tractors and fertilizer. But if the sun isn't shining or it's snowing in, in June in the northern hemisphere, then there's not much that can be done there. I mean, you know, people could still, I guess, grow things in greenhouses, but if it's cloudy or overcast, I don't know how that it's would gonna work. It's going to be a problem no matter yeah. what. Yeah, and, yeah. We well, got it, it was six billion people on Earth now, or something, and suddenly, no, we're getting know. we're we're um, inching toward eight billion. Eight billion, yeah. And uh, I know we're past seven billion right now, and it, you know, I've talked a lot in our regular conversations about how much I'd like to have uh, my Futurama quotes at, on hand. And this is a perfect example. Of, there's a Futurama quote where Fry says, thank God global warming never happened. And then Leela says, oh, it did, but nuclear winter canceled it out. <laughs> so oh, be a perfect quote oh right no. <laughs> uh, it pro I'm assuming, though, that 
nuclear bombs are not going to solve global warming. There would be, I know, I know our answer is to throw a bomb at it. If we got a problem, let's bomb it. (laughs) That one's one's probably not the best solution. Right. Um, Yeah. So nuclear bombs, we don't like them. I'm a, I'm against them. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and say that out loud, announce that today. And our last news story we are going to mention today to end on a little bit of a high note, I guess, depending on your (laughs) opinion of Madeleine Albright. As you know, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright died on Wednesday, March 23rd. And of all places, Guantanamo Bay responded with an odd show of respect Uh, The prison compound lowered its flags to half-mast, and among the the flags was a McDonald's flag, a red flag with the golden arches lowered to half-mast to honor the memory of Madeleine Albright. Uh, I don't know what to make of that. I don't understand. Was there some kind of connection? I, I, no one knows that as far as I've seen, everyone seemed to be puzzled. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's just weird. And so then that made me think, wait, do they have a McDonald's flag? Maybe they just have a McDonald's flag flying normally and they just lowered it to half masts because they lowered the other ones. But then it made me wonder why would they <laughs> be flying a McDonald's flag in the first place? Um, I don't know if anyone has any insight on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. hit us up, send us a message, and um, because that's a head scratcher, you know. Um, Madeline Albright, of course, she served as Secretary of State uh, for for the second half of Bill Clinton's term as president, and. She is noted as having uh, telling Colin Powell when he resisted uh, military action, "Why you've we've got this nice shiny military? Why don't you want to use it?" <laughs> so she's got some fans and some critics. Uh, we'll leave that up to you guys because we're. I don't know. I don't. I'm not in the mood <laughs> to get into it right now. All right. And uh, we're introducing a new segment, uh, as of yet unnamed. Uh, I've got my brain, my branding brain at work on this. Um, But we're going to start, uh, we're going to discuss some of the stranger moments in the history of the Central Intelligence Agency, which is uh, admittedly the show's main purview. Um, And this week, we're looking at the CIA looking at the planet Jupiter with psychics. In 1973, two men in two different states arranged to simultaneously remote view Jupiter, six years ahead of the Voyager 1 space probes passed by. The experiment was meant to compare what they each saw to the other's observation. They both reported seeing yellow crystals, giant a giant mountain, 
They also both described thick cloud cover over everything and giant tornadoes. One of them said he could also tell that the way the flight path of Voyager 1 was planned, it would crash into one of Jupiter's moons, which we know did not happen. Well, I, I read through some of their comparisons, and it just seems kind of like cold reading stuff, you know, or, or, or things that we, we could have already kind of guessed or, or you know, knew about. Like, oh, uh, it's, it's, it's gases, and, and there are crystals. It might have rings, you know, kind of like Saturn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, one of the guys was in uh, Arkansas, so I thought that was pretty neat. That's right. Uh, Harold Morrow Sherman was from Mountain View, Arkansas. His credentials included, of course, noted psychic, but he was also a prolific writer. He wrote sports stories for children, self-help books, uh, including the very popular Your Key to Happiness, and he even wrote a few Broadway plays. Uh, the other man involved and who set up the experiment, Ingo Swan, was in California at the time. One of Swan's biggest claims to fame was being featured in four volumes of the classic book series, Time Life's Mysteries of the Unknown. Read the book, if you remember those commercials from the 90s. Swan also worked with intelligence agencies to investigate the potential of remote viewing for gathering intelligence. In case you don't know uh, what remote viewing is, it's a sort of a controlled out-of-body experience. The idea is that a person can enter a sort of trance, then separate their spirit from their body and travel to anywhere to see and hear what's going on. This would include, theoretically anyway, Jupiter, uh, but also Russian nuclear missile installations and troop movements and inside the Kremlin, you know, assuming it worked. The Defense Intelligence Agency started the Stargate program in 1978 to test all of this stuff, to test the possibility of remote viewing for military applications. The Project Stargate ran all the way until 1995 when the DIA sort of dumped the program onto the CIA and the CIA took all of the information. They reviewed all of the, uh, all of the files from the experiments and they concluded that nothing useful ever came of it. Uh, we did get a half decent movie out of it, at least with uh, the men who stare at goats. If you remember that it was not bad. Yes, I am skeptical. I, you know, so with, when we cover the, history of the CIA, we have, for the most part, stayed away from the less verified conspiratorial things. We did cover the story of uh, alien abductee Antonio Villas-Boas, um, but for the most part, we try to stick to things that are verified, and when it comes to, for me personally, when it comes to issues of aliens, UFOs, extraterrestrials, uh, as well as 
psychic powers, ESP, and other supernatural things. Um, I I adopted a like an amended version of the catchphrase for the X Files. If you remember, the X Files motto was "I want to believe." <laughs> uh, my motto has been "I want to believe." But, yeah, because I, I mean, you know, I think it would be amazing to find out that, you know, you know, to discover alien life and extraterrestrials here. Well, maybe amazing, maybe terrible, depending on the nature of the <laughs> aliens. Um, I would love it if uh, ESP and psychic powers were real. Uh, that I again, I think that would be really cool. But. I don't know anybody with psychic powers. Do you? No, no. I think I've known some people who said they have psychic powers, but I mean, they ended up in like real estate. So I, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, that's the story of the CIA's psychic probes into Jupiter. It's a strange uh, moment in their history. Well, Although it, I will it say it was good taxpayer money well spent. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I got to say they were had an open mind. They had an open mind and they were kind of trying to look at it scientifically. You know, let's keep these guys separated. Let's look and see what this person says and let's look and see what this person says and compare. Right. And uh, honestly, I don't think yeah. it cost them much money. It was just a couple of guys who laid down on the couch and had somebody else write down what they said. Oh, they probably they probably charged a war pension by the hour. Oh, I'm a great psychic. <laughs> this is well, and they did say so. One of the two psychics, what didn't actually one of them worked for the CIA program, and the other one did not, and they weren't able to scientifically process and analyze the other guy's report because they said they couldn't justify the expense. So I get, you know, they are trying to pinch some pennies there. <laughs> yeah. And the, what's funny Which is actually that makes the other kind of like less valuable because now you've reduced your, <laughs> <laughs> your sample. And I mean, it's kind of a, a bull experiment to begin with, and now they're just making it even more bull by the say we want to save a little money. <laughs> right, but we couldn't, we couldn't get the boss to sign off on everything. So it was either either pay to have that guy's report analyzed, or I get a per diem for lunch, and I <laughs> I chose my lunch per diem. So. That's probably the right decision, to be fair. <laughs> right. You can eat a lunch. You can't eat a report on a psychic probe of Jupiter. Um, yeah. And I, I say this is one of many strange, quirky instances in CIA history. It is, uh, as we continue with the, you know, these segments, not the strangest. <laughs> and so, you know, tune in for more of those um i'm excited to work more i feel like we don't do as much cia related material as i would like to well you know um, they're really good i mean they're spies you just don't hear about them 
Yeah. I mean, that's a good, <laughs> that's, I guess it's a good sign if we don't hear about them. It means they're doing their job right. It's right. when we have a lot of news about the CIA. That's when they're messing up. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, there is, you know, I like reading about different fan theories behind movies. And there's this one theory that James Bond in, in the James Bond stories, he's not the actual spy. He is, a he, he always works as a big distraction to, <laughs> to distract the enemies. So the real spies, the ones who do not, go around using their real name and announcing right presence everywhere they go um that they can get the work done while he has you know all the goons chasing him uh all right <laughs> well so he gets to have a lot of fun in the process uh, yeah and he gets to drive the nice cars i want to call I, you know i don't need a a brand new Maybach or what's the, you know, I can't remember which car he BMWs most recently. Maybe I don't need a nice European luxury car, but I would like to have uh, an oil slick capability with my 2011 Honda Odyssey. <laughs> I'm fine with my minivan, but it would be nice to have uh oil slick and maybe uh, a couple of front-mounted machine guns, you know, for the interstate. Ah. So, all right. Well, that wraps up another episode of Raphael News. We are definitely sticking with that name. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, maybe. De yes. Uh, it's a pretty good Oasis album also. Definitely, maybe. Anyway, you know the uh, the social media stuff where we are at online, uh, Twitter and Instagram, CIA Files Podcast. You can find us on facebook.com slash CIA Files. Uh, the website, which we are in the process of updating and revamping. Uh, so check back there soon for more info that will that is and will be ciafiles.net be sure to give us the you know the old thumbs up five stars uh nice reviews whatever you feel like uh, you can spare in regards to your time we appreciate it and we will be back soon with another news episode and in about a week, we'll be releasing uh, our next proper episode uh, where we look at the second half of the life of James Jesus Angleton. And yeah, thanks for listening. Yay. Probably want to edit out that yay. We'll see. I'll see how it sounds. <laughs> <laughs>